Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Hello, Michael. Hey, Barry. Good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm excited to uh, be in this Zoom session with you to discuss uh, an exciting topic. Yeah. So uh, this is this today's podcast episode is basically um, a, a series of realizations about things that don't work. Is that a a fair way ooh, of explaining it? <laughs> That's a beautiful way of explaining it. Much so, more eloquent than I. Uh, than I could have come up with or expected. Today. Yes. So, so the 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 origins of today's uh, episode. I think it's important to to pay homage to to the Genesis story. Um, this this started out as this started out all about meatloaf, and in um, the singer, the, the singer. singer. Yes, yes, the singer um, uh, who died uh, in January of uh, this year, 2022. And I was having a, a conversation with my brother, who is uh, a meatloaf fan. And he was really bothered. I mean, I, almost to the point of being comedic. He was genuinely bothered that Meatloaf never got the critical acclaim or the recognition that, um, that Jimmy felt he deserved. And um, this got us talking about lists and top 10 albums. And, you know, Meatloaf's album, uh, Bad Out of Hell, uh, according to Wikipedia, is the fourth best selling album of all time. And so we got the idea that we were going to talk about the top 10 and explain how and why they are where they are. And uh, as we played with this for quite some time, we realized there's problems and uh, not so much that we disagree with the math of the list or how the list, but there are some very interesting gaps uh, in this list, even well past the top 10. And so the plan for today is to do a quick gloss of the top 10 and uh, explain where these or tr sort of not explain. I don't want to take that sort of authority on this, but maybe poke at where and how and why the problems that you and I see exist and, and the significance of them. Yeah, can I add uh, without putting the brakes on the, on the list, because I want to get to that, because there are exciting things we hope afoot once we start commenting on the list. But can I add something uh, to the Genesis story, to the backstory of all this? Absolutely. Because there's another aspect of it. Coincidentally, I, I wanted to mention, and I think it's relevant to our discussion, because it kind of generated, it's one of the things that generated our questions about the list and our response to this list of the top 10 best-selling albums. Um, coincidentally with Michael's um, fervent or, or ex you know, exchange for, from, with his brother, I was listening to Eddie Trunk on Sirius XM. I'm a listener, I'm a member of Trunk Nation. And there was a call-in show that day because we loved the past and it was in, the, in, in this context of people mourning meatloaf, I found out certain things from this episode that I never heard before. Like I knew he was popular. I knew that Bad Hat of Hell album was sold a lot, but I didn't know what that meant. And then Eddie Trunk himself was shocked when he looked it up and said, oh my gosh, this is the fourth biggest or whatever it is. Uh, we'll talk about the exact rag team in a moment, but this is in the top five record 
best-selling albums of all time. So that I think was an important part of the story, his shock, my shock, and then I think Michael, your shock, right? So then we went to the list. I mentioned this because I think this, this is an important part of the story we're going to tell, that we came to the list with a sense of surprise, like, uh, and maybe a little bit of skepticism, thinking, could these albums indeed be best-selling albums? And if so, why? And so one of the things that I think this is important to kind of explain, uh, Michael, I'm elaborating on this because I think this is kind of important for the setup because I want to make sure that listeners understand that not only were we interested in the list from the get-go, but we had a kind of curious fascination with it and a skepticism and that it started, you know, it started, it led, it, it resulted in us doing mind games. Like we're thinking, the Eagles, why the hell is that there? Or why isn't that there? Or why the Eagles and not the Beatles? So it basically generated a lot of questions until, and this I think is where we're gonna talk about uh, directly, until after a while we started saying, even more important than the question of why these albums, we started noticing what's not on the list. That's and right. that became the topic uh, of our discussion today. So without any further ado. Yeah, so I think um, there's a million ways we could do this. And as I'm thinking about the list, there are basically three different categories that I'll put the albums okay. in. So instead of trying right. to talk about all 10, I honestly think it's probably more productive to talk about the categories into which- Let's do it, my friend. Fall. So I'm gonna go through the list first and then I'm gonna sort of car uh, categorize them and you uh, can feel free to disagree as you'd like. Okay. So please. in order from the number one selling to the number 10 selling. So we're, we're doing this backwards. Usually like to build the hype. I'm, I'm going number one down to number 10. The best selling album of all time was Michael Jackson's Thriller in 1982. Behind that was ACD's back, ACDC's Back in Black in 1980. Behind that was Whitney Houston's soundtrack from the movie The Bodyguard in 92. Behind that, our dear friend Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell, 1977. Then The Eagles' Greatest Hits from 76. After that, we had Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon from 73. We had The Eagles again with Hotel California from 76. Thank you. Yeah. Then we had the Bee Gees Saturday Night Fever soundtrack from 1977. We had Fleetwood Mac's Rumors in 1977 as well. And then at number 10, we had Shania Twain's Come On Over from 1997. And mm. okay, mm -hmm. so there are- You said you had three categories, right? I've got three different categories. Okay? All right, let's hear I so and these categories I'm, I'm uh revolve around part of the problem. So I'm gonna say that for reasons that will become clear very, very shortly, albums after 1981 go into one category. Mm -hmm. Albums that are connected to other forms of media go into a second category. Mm -hmm. And then there's our third unnamed category. And right. I identify 1981 because that's when MTV was hit the airs, hit the airway. Okay. So there are three albums that come after 1981, Michael Jackson's thriller, Whitney Houston's bodyguard and Shania Twain's come on over. So number one, number three, and number 10. Okay. Um, the second group 
albums that have some sort of cross tie-in tie-in and crossover stuff yeah to to appeal to well maybe three of them you can make the argument these three of them you have whitney houston's bodyguard Mm -hmm. you have the bg saturday night fever and then you could probably make the argument that the eagles greatest hits is a tie-in from multiple sources the greatest hit you know one of the i things, find the greatest hits album problematic i think we yeah do. yeah well you know and i i think i'm going to offer why one reason why that might be that you find it problematic and that and i think it's a reason why you're including it in the category one possible tie-in between the soundtracks and say something like the eagles greatest hits is there's necessarily a miscellaneous quality to any greatest hits this is why people don't, this is why true fans, quote unquote, never like greatest hits because they feel that you're, you're isolating parts of a career without taking into consideration like the, the other aesthetic, right. other parts of the aesthetic uh, trajectory of an artist. Um, but the simple truth is people like various songs. <laughs> um, and I, I think they like to buy variety. And that's one of the things that consumers always really crave in, in, um, when, the, when they're buying albums. If you get several different hits and several different hits that kind of appeal to you from different artists, that's automatically, that, that's an automatically, uh, uh, I think it's automatically a consumer, uh, no, that's a consumer deal, deal maker. Um, you know, actually, I would think the thing that's harder to explain are the single band albums, something like Dark Side of the Moon, where it's all about the Pink Floyd brand, or Rumors, where it's all about the Fleetwood Mac brand, or even Hotel California, which is, again, all about the Eagles brand, and it's about an album as opposed to a miscellaneous collection of songs. So how, how, do, you, how do you account for ACDC of all bands having the well, second greatest album of all time? This is a week. Or best-selling. This is a weak, uh, this is a weak reason, but it, it's the reason I'll trot out. I think that one thing that all those stories have in common beyond the incredible music, you know, uh, in many ways, those are kind of genre defining albums musically. But I think in isolation to that, I think this is an important part of their multi, you know, their multi-selling appeal. It explains the multi-million dollar sales, multi-million copy sales. It's because you can tie those albums to a larger story that in the case of Fleetwood Mac, all the extra, all the various documentaries, all the press on Fleetwood Mac, all the, everything about, everything you would read about that band's career talks about that album in a very particular way, in a very, and they present it as a huge, massive rock star soap opera with all these partners you know, with everybody exchanging partners, couples breaking up, couples making up, in some cases, couples never fucking making up. And so it becomes charged to this larger story about uh, the dangers of relationships, the perils and excitements of uh, new love and, and losing new love. Um, you know, it comes, ch- the, the music is tied to these other stories. All those songs, Go Your Own Way, Dreams, everything is about a relationship imploding or coming to birth. So I think that explains it. Um, ACDC, if you know about them, now maybe I'm, I'm assuming that people know, but I think they might know 
you don't have to be a total rock nerd to understand that that was a pivotal album. That's a come from behind story in one of the greatest traditions of sports and music that they had just lost their lead singer. They, the band had just lost its lead singer, their front man, a front man that was vitally important to that music. And then all of a sudden they find a new front man and the impossible happens. They make a lot of money. They sell more albums than before. In fact, I would say that the ACDC listener of today really only knows this incarnation of the band. I think the Bon Scott incarnation of the band probably is fading into the memory of people who me, uh, like me who are older. Mm -hmm. um, and then what was the Hotel California story? There's a way in which you're kind of buying a story about LA. And I think you, if you buy that album anytime after 1977, I think you're buying into this story, this very appealing story about LA rock and everybody's taking a ton of cocaine and they're driving their Jeeps out into the Mesa. And, you know, this idea of California rock star decadence. And um, I think you're buying into that vision of a very powerful vision of American possibility. So I think all those albums, there's a story that people are purchasing along with purchasing the music. And that I think explains it. So there's a tie-in, right? Yeah, no, I think, and this is interesting because what, what we've basically done, if we look at the, the three buckets that I've identified here, we're saying, well, in that third group, basically those albums in the top 10 have a narrative that, that, that people can connect to. We talk about the second group, which would have been, you know, the, the, mu the music soundtracks and the greatest hits. Those are appealing to people because of the variance within it. It's familiar, yet it's different. And we all know that it's tried and true, right? Um, you've got the media tie-ins with the movies. So that leaves us with our number, the, the, the first bucket, which is the um, post-MTV offerings on here, which is Michael Jackson's Thriller, 82, Whitney Houston, uh, The Bodyguard. And we've already talked about that. I think that belongs as much to the second group as it does to this sure. first group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in other words, I don't, I don't know that that album uh survive or or thrived thrive, good lord thrived uh because it was some sort of greatest hits thing there was it was an incredibly successful movie i don't have the numbers for it in front of me but um and then we got shania twain's come on over and, and how do we explain that well it's interesting so let's let's start with michael jackson for a second and just say that thriller it should be a surprise to absolutely nobody that it's number one on this list i think that the music on its own probably puts it there but then you know i remember being a kid and seeing the video for thriller mtv is becoming this sort of ascendant force and the video was like its own little movie i mean the hell the, mm -hmm. the, the place mm -hmm. in a drive-in movie right and i remember mm -hmm. it scared the hell out of me but it was exciting it was <laughs> different and it really what it did what the video did was it added another dimension mm -hmm. to oh absolutely to, to, the, to the to the experience about it mm -hmm. so then so i i don't i don't think that that's a surprise shania twain was a huge surprise to me i had a really hard time figuring this out until i started digging into what happened with this album what mm -hmm. and when happened and uh i think that this album in particular, and its place on the chart here at number 10 goes a long way to explaining 
why there are so many massive gaps in the list as you go farther down. I think it's important to notice that there is nothing on any of the lists in terms of top selling albums from the Wikipedia list anyways, uh, that, that comes after 2015. So according to the numbers, it would seem that music just stopped being good after 2015. And Ted Joya <laughs> wrote us an article about that. But, and that's only Adele, right? So it's basically, you have Adele carrying the flag. So let, I, I <clears throat> and I mean no disrespect to Adele. Um, so here's, here's what I realized about uh, Come On Over. Okay, so this was 1997. It was, it spent time at number one on the country charts from 97 to 2000. That's a four year run. Mm -hmm. It had 11 singles on it. I think there were 16 tracks, 11 singles. Three of them were at number one. Five of them were top 10. All of them were top 40. So in Crazy. terms of a that's pop crazy. music album, that's, that's just insane. So then the question is like, well, okay, how does it get to be that well done? So, um, and, and this was hard for me as well, because I'm just going to say Shania Twain is not my cup of tea. And it was really hard to, 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 to get to this without a ton of personal prejudice sort of working its way in. Like there's so many albums that I feel are better deserving of this, but numbers don't lie. The other thing that was interesting about this though, was that she leveraged the videos well. The videos were slick. They were high produced. But CD sales peaked in 99. Quite frankly, there's a lot of people buying CDs. But additionally, there was no streaming. There, were no, there, there, there was no free music available to have other than the radio. And so this got me thinking about, well, what were the moments that got us into the streaming world? And I've identified three or four of them, right? So the first one being MTV, where music takes on another dimension with the video. Mm -hmm. 2000, Metallica versus Napster. 2005, YouTube. 2011, mm -hmm. Spotify comes to the United States. 2015, Apple Music. And I think it's really interesting that by the time streaming starts to take hold, right? You get 2011, you get Spotify, 2015, Apple launches its music, you know, Apple Music, which we know today. That was the last time you had, that, that, that Adele was the most recent album to crack the top like 40 or whatever it is. Um, so, well, I don't, what do you, what do you think of this? Like the, Natal the Metallica Napster was a really interesting thing because I think that was the first, time you know you had napster you had limewire you had kazaa you had all of these other platforms where suddenly music was readily available it was free it looked similar to what we see today i want to hear something now you just call it out into the air and your smart speaker plays it or your phone plays it for you then you had to sit down and download it but it was still instantly available mm -hmm. and i think it was interesting because right before the metallica napster lawsuit there was another last lawsuit. I think it was A and M. Was it? Was it A and M? A and M Records and, and several other companies. A and M. Twenty yeah, think, some. Twenty some. No, I think it was sixteen. Sixteen. Okay. Yeah, A and M. Eighteen. It was A and M. A and M Records and eighteen record companies filed suit against Napster. 
and nobody really cared. I remember being in college and just heard nothing about this, mm-hmm. right? Metallica sues Napster and everybody's just outraged, right? You greedy rock star, this is hurting us. We need you. Know, this is how artists get visibility. You've made enough money. I mean, they were vilified for this. And yeah. I, I think that amongst my peer groups, they really came off as assholes, you know, like just selfish, out of touch millionaires who were solely concerned with profit. Um, YouTube comes along five years later and now it is music and the video as well, right. Uh, are suddenly instantly available. And then we have streaming as we have it today, today, Mm -hmm. today. Right. Um, But what's interesting is in 2000, Metallica stands up and says, you can't have my music free. I didn't, uh, Lars had the, Lars Ulrich had the the statement, if I want to give stuff away for free, that's my choice. That choice has been taken away from me. He said something to that account. 2015, Apple launches Apple Music and is part of the promotion to get people to sign on, because I think it was like $10 a month or something. Um, They offered three months free, but during that three months, they weren't going to pay the musicians, the artists for their material. And Taylor Swift steps up, who, by the way, is completely absent from all of these lists on Wikipedia, right? But Taylor Swift steps up and says, no, if you're not going to pay me for my music for this three-month period, you can't have it. She essentially pulled the Metallica. And the next day, Apple reverse course agreed to pay everybody. And she caught absolutely zero flack that I can recall for this move. She was applauded for it, right? You're now helping people get paid. So it's interesting how much the perception around, uh, you know, artist remuneration and the role of the uh, mm-hmm. providers has, 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 has gone 180 on this. Um, yeah, that's a very good point. So- while the situation has, uh, I think this is an important thing to add to what you just said. Yes, the public perception of artist remuneration has totally shifted in those years between Lars Ulrich and Taylor Swift's uh, uh, business decision. On the other hand, what has changed economically? It's, it, it, um, it's not clear that, I mean, if Taylor was standing up for artist rights, which he was, and the possibility of a remuneration for artists, uh, it's basically only a very special category of artists that we're talking about. So the, the landscape, I'm just saying, didn't change. Public perception may have, but um, many ways the landscape of screen, the economic landscape that was created that had reorganized itself or organized itself around steaming, streaming or steaming, <laughs> steaming. Uh, streaming music instead of through instead of being organized by the record industry, recording industry, record companies, um, that economic landscape did not change. Artists are still really kind of holding the short end of the stick. Now that's complicated and that's become very complicated in recent years when Spotify, I think has made, it, it hasn't received that much publicity, but I've read, indicate, read stories that indicates that um, There is, you know, they have taken steps, good faith steps to pay more money. 
But usually the better remunerated artist is the artist who's already making or has made a great deal of money. So it's basically the typical capitalist game that the people at the top of the pyramid or near the top of the pyramid, um, they, they continue to do well. And the people at the bottom of the pyramid, good Lord, God, right? You know, no hope. Yeah, you're not, I mean, you, 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 I think if that, when past a certain point, you're you're really playing in name only you're 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 right you, you better right. you're doing something else to support yourself so but but before we go on to this topic let's sort of try and sum up for our reader for our readers for our listeners and for ourselves um so you know that very interesting and and provocative account of streaming and the new the new uh landscape of streaming music um Michael, why does that make us feel, let's see if we can articulate why that makes us dissatisfied with a wiki list of well, best-selling albums. So I, I think uh, inherent in any list is going to be a measure of dissatisfaction, right? Okay. And that's, right. quite indeed frankly, that's what makes lists so great. Um, the problem that I saw beyond, uh, you know, uh, a few and, and again, you know, people listening can go pull up the Wikipedia list. I'm sure it's a dynamic list, but it, it doesn't matter. There's moments in there that will just have you shaking your head like, how in the hell is, is, is this on there? Um, the thing that I noticed about it is regardless of my personal tastes in music, they're just too many omissions, right? It's like, like after Taylor, two, a, after, a, yeah, yeah, and I'm a fan, right? But after 2015, it stops, right? It just stops. And so, you know, initially I was really puzzled, like, wow, this is really weird. Is this somehow an album sales only? But it, it seems to account for, I mean, th these lists, different lists, different, you know, uh, yeah, just different, different organizations are putting lists together. Even when you look at some that claim to have downloads included or sales, um, uh -huh. They're just uh -huh. massive album holes. sales and downloads or yeah, yeah. there's just, right. there's weird, there's weird gaps in it. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so I thought about, uh, Chris Anderson's, uh, famous, um, long tail theory, right. Where the markets for profit exist in, in, in little niche spaces, uh, that are potentially underserved. Right. So you're mm -hmm. going to do better instead of trying to sell the fat part of the curve, sell to the skinny part of the curve. Uh, to people that aren't served. And I think that music seems to be going that way. And I've noticed that since I was a kid, you know, there were basically, uh, you know, th you know, three genres of popular music when I was a kid, discounting uh, classical music, you know, you had rock and roll, right? You had uh, what was just country music. Uh, you had, I guess, pop music and then you had you know, rap became well, that was ascendant when I was in high school. That was, you know, not what it is now. Um, but we didn't have so many massive little subgenres. You know, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. The subgenrefication of music is definitely a thing and it's created by streaming. The subgenrefication is created by streaming music. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, I, I can't say that, I, that that's really not entirely accurate because obviously, you know, uh, I was alive for the Nirvana thing, right? So we saw grunge with Nirvana and Pearl Jam. But now, it was still fairly large chunks, you know, now there are, and this could just be that I'm old and starting to play the get off my lawn game, but it, it seems that there are just infinitely finer, thinner slices of music that are really catering to that, that long tail theory. 
I, I think it's un, I think that's undoubtedly true. I don't think it's a question of age because I think the same the same material reality uh, or the same reality rather ha, um, of, of what you just described the increasing micro it, this is the, this is the other side of the same coin that what you just described and I think accurately is the micro nichification or the the multiplication of genres in music so that you not only have genres or subgenres. Rock always had subgenres, right? Prog rock or grunge rock that you mentioned or punk rock or whatever. But now you have genres within genres and multiple genres within mm -hmm. the subgenres. So I think that's empirically, I think that's just true. And the, this phenomenon that's recent, I think is also directly related to streaming music platforms and their prevalence. Um, I think it's just the other side of the same coin. Uh, the promiscuous, don't know what else to say it, uh, um, but just like the chance contingent mixing of genres within the work of a several art, uh, several pop artists uh, within the work of a singular pop artist. So that's a long way and win long winded way and pretend, maybe pretentious way of saying something that we already have internalized. When you're talking about the major pop artists, whether you're talking about Post Malone, uh, there are exceptions, but if you're talking about Post Malone, if you're talking about what's the breakout hip hop act right now, there are hip hop acts that are merging rap and rock. Mm -hmm. So that you, uh, Olivia Rodrigo, perhaps the most prominent example of this, the other Taylor Swift, of course, is an example. Well, but so now you have artists who represent multiple genres under the same brand of Taylor Swift. Yeah, I was saying what you're talking about. It is. And I think that I was I was originally I was going to throw in my plug for Limp Biscuit. If you're going to talk about. Oh, yeah. Rap, yeah. Rap well, and rock. But could. it's but it's interesting because they were still. A one trick pony, whereas now you're right. What you have is people being able to play, you know, dip their foot in multiple pools, multiple pools. Exactly. That's a better way of saying what I was trying to say. Yeah. And, but I think we're all talking about, so, I mean, to me, it's undisputed what you were saying was questionable. You were saying, well, it seems like, you know, it's an old man thing that we're bemoaning the, we're, I don't think we're bemoaning anything. We're just describing the, the landscape. And I think this diversification, this micro nichification has everything to do with, and this is our big topic, right? This is why I think we're, uh, why I think we're dissatisfied with the list is that what the list, the list leaves out too much of our current reality. And the current reality is the prevalence and entrenchment of a completely new social experience of music that has its own distinguishing features uh, that we should talk about here um, that makes it seem like in, instead of, how about this? I think one of the reasons why we're unhappy with the, it's not that the, the wiki list of best-selling albums is telling a bad story or even an inaccurate story. The problem is it's telling a story that is incomplete. What it totally leaves out is the idea that is our contemporary reality. And we're chafing at the discrepancy between that older story and the new story. The new story is a story of micro nichification. It's a story where streaming music is prevalent and where selling is the is not is no longer selling or buying music is no longer the default option. And that whole new way of consumption is something that the these lists that top selling 
top best-selling list of albums, just it can't account for. So shall we move to a takeaway? Yeah. I think so that I was, is, well, I, I would say, your, I think I just did, gave my takeaway. Well, I'm going I'm to jump in and add to this because I, I agree. And that's kind of why I wanted to jump in. I didn't want to lose this thread. Um, to me, the takeaway from this is really a, a great irony. Um, as music has become a digital commodity, it has ceased to be a communal experience. And, um, you know, as we were talking about this beforehand, uh, a, a particular experience uh, that I had in high school, which is a long time ago, uh, came to mind. I remember trying to buy tickets to a show. And I believe the show was U2 for the Octung Baby Tour. And I believe that it was the Pixies that were opening for them. I didn't see anything that specifically explained this, but this was the show we were going to buy tickets to. And we knew that the show tickets went on sale, I don't know, say 9 a.m., wherever. I remember a multi-hour day running around at ridiculously unsafe speeds, driving from store to store to store, trying to buy these tickets. Well, friends of mine were doing the same thing. And this was pre-cell phone. This, I mean, this is back in the days of the carrier pigeon for all intents and purposes. <laughs> now, it was this wild chase by a group of idiot kids trying to get tickets for something, right? Um, the buildup to this day was substantial. The 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 hype on the day was substantial and the disappointment for it was real because we never did get tickets. And I just don't see that sort of communal experience anymore. I mean, you know, if you look about it, there's just music has become so individual. It's something we consume through headphones. It's I can't speak for you, but I bristle, man, when I'm out and I have to hear someone else's music, it pisses me off. Hmm. You know, and I don't want to hear your music. I want to hear my music and I want to hear my music exactly when I want to hear it and exactly where I want to hear it, which is at home or in my car or by myself somewhere. You know, it's no we don't we don't get together to talk about these things anymore. We talk about it virtually. Right. But I, I find that the, the, the great democratization that the Internet was supposed to provide and in many ways has provided has robbed what has historically been one of the most communal experiences of its own community. And I don't know, again, I, you know, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking, um, wow, I could be missing something. And so, you know, uh, dear listener, if I am, by all means, please send us an email, let me know, Hey, you got it wrong. But I just feel like music has become so individually curated. And as a result, this hugely social force, uh, ha has you know plays to an audience of one, and it's it, it depresses me. And if we're not curious, let me add a little quick footnote to uh, to the curation bit. If we're not curating, if, if we're not curating our music by compiling playlists, everyone else is giving us playlists that they curated for us to listen to. <laughs> Those become the default options, I think. So I think that that whole issue of curation. I think that's part of what you're talking about, 
what you're describing as part of the individualization or the um, the individualization of music experience. And let's use the let's use the Marxist A word, shall we? Um, individualizing can, in this case, if you're individual, if you're moving from a social paradigm of listening to a purely individualistic, uh, an individual determined paradigm of listening, uh, the Marxist word for that would be alienation. That that situation of greater individualism is not necessarily uh, an indication of our greater freedom, but we experience it as a loss. We experience it as something that has alienated us from a resource that we used to have. Well, that's, uh, I can definitely see our listeners throwing up their hands and wanting to uh, uh, decry us and, and, you know, call us out as old men, which we are. I don't, I don't mind saying, or I am. Um, but, and, and we encourage you to do so. I think we, we, sh we should probably stop here and let, yeah, the, gonna, let the, the let the crowd join the conversation and tell us how we're wrong. I'm gonna I'm gonna after this I'm just gonna go sit in the dark and listen to Leonard Cohen. <laughs> exactly. Who also I'm died. Make sure recently. that young people stay out of my lawn. <laughs> That's it. Um, all right. Well, Barry, as always, thank you. This was incredibly interesting. Um, yeah. Well, uh, well this for is what us, we get with lists. It, 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 yeah, it was incredibly interesting for us, but it may not have been, it may have been aggravating for you, dear listeners. So please give us some feedback and let us know what you think, because we want to know. All right. Well, Barry, thank you as always. Uh, have a great day and we'll, we'll, we'll talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Right, bye. Hey there. One more thing real quick. If you have questions or comments about what we've talked about, go ahead and drop us an email from our website at www criticalmediastudiespodcast.com or you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Critical Media Studies Pod. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com.